Hello Darksiders. Just a heads up about today's episode. This is part two of the story of André and Ben. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please can I ask that you go back and listen to it, as today's episode will have much more context. However, much like last week, this story deals with violent, sadistic and horrific crimes. It is absolutely not meant for little ears. Listener discretion could not be more advised. So if this doesn't sound like your cup of tea, I wouldn't blame you for signing off now. But if you're still there, let's get on with the show. Last week, we met two old friends, Ben and Andrei. Their once harmonious town of Domachevo in Poland became divided after Russia invaded in 1939. The Russians showed much more leniency to those of Belarusian descent, and they passed work, land, farms and food to the more educated and ethnically acceptable populace in the town, which was, predominantly, the Jews. The already economically disadvantaged and mostly illiterate Poles, whom lived a hand-to-mouth existence farming the lands outside the town, suddenly found themselves stripped of their livelihoods and incomes as they were deemed inferior by the Russians. This invasion saw Ben, a Jew, and his family rise in status, but Andrei, a Pole, fell in status to that of a pauper, and he was forced to scavenge and steal. But in 1942, the German army turned on Russia and attacked her, accessing her western borders by advancing through Poland, occupying her land, which included the town of Domachevo. Once again, the town would experience a shift in their societal, ethnic and religious makeup, just as they had throughout the Russian invasion. However, this invasion by the Germans would be the worst one yet. It would go on to pit neighbour against neighbour, religion against religion, and friend against friend. During the war, both friends would flee their town for different reasons and under very different circumstances. But over 50 years later, these two old friends would finally stand face to face in a room together. One a warmonger, and one a witness. And this reunion came about because of a chain of events set in motion by a remarkable man by the name of Simon Wiesenthal. This is Darkseid, and I am your host, Suze. So, who is this remarkable man, Simon Wiesenthal? And, just how did he contribute to the reunion of these two old, former friends? Hmm. Well, let's find out. When millions were murdered, why was I allowed to live? For more than half a century, Simon Wiesenthal has asked himself this question again and again. 
He came out of the Holocaust with nobody, nothing, 99 pounds. He was barely alive. And with that, he wouldn't give up. Wiesenthal really forced to bring Nazi criminals to justice and to leave the historic record of what they had done. He was the only one who systematically tried to find Eichmann. Your organization had tracked down some 1,100 yes, Nazis. Not the Jewish James Bond. I'm only a survivor who pays with a dedicated work for the privilege to remain alive. So as you've just heard, Simon Wiesenthal was a Holocaust survivor. After the war, he followed the Nuremberg trials avidly. But when he realised they were only prosecuting the war criminals they had caught and not going after the ones whom had fled, he established the Jewish Documentation Centre in Vienna. And working with global governments, he set about hunting down all the war criminals still in hiding. In all, he weaseled out more than 1,100 criminals. One of the criminals he found in hiding was a Lithuanian police battalion officer called Anton Gekas, whose unit murdered thousands of Jews in Lithuania and Belarus, but after the war, he fled under an assumed new identity and evaded the Nuremberg trials. Working with the Lithuanian government, Simon was able to track Gekas down to Edinburgh in Scotland. The Lithuanian government sought Gekas's extradition so that he could stand trial for his crimes, of which the British government agreed to the extradition order. However, Gekas died in 2001 before he could be sent to Vilnius for trial. The British government was shocked to discover that not only had they unwittingly harboured a war criminal, but he had worked for British intelligence following his arrival in the UK. The Gekas affair became instrumental in convincing the British government to seek out and take legal action against any other Nazi war criminals hiding in the UK. This led to the creation of the War Crimes Act, which in turn created an independent war crimes unit to look into the potential war criminals still residing in the UK. Over the course of eight years, it investigated a staggering 378 suspects. However, because of the nature of the act that brought the unit into being, it was very hard to actually prosecute any of the criminals they unearthed. Why, I hear you ask? Well, they were trying suspects in retrospective crimes in Britain when the actual crimes weren't committed in Britain, so the cases were hard to prove. In addition, to be tried via the War Crime Unit, either eyewitness testimony of the atrocities was required, or, if any documentation was submitted as evidence, the author of the document had to bear witness at trial as to the document's authenticity. And the Unit and Act came into being in 1991 some 46 years after the end of the war, when many of the eyewitnesses and document writers were no longer with us, as weren't some of the suspects they were investigating. But still, even with the information provided by Simon Wiesenthal and the newly established War Crime Unit, Savoniak's name didn't register on anyone's radar. 
he had simply been forgotten by the passage of time. Or had he? Whilst time might have forgotten about Svoniak, the remaining townspeople of Domachevo had not. As soon as the war was over, they took their stories about him to the KGB, whom immediately named him as one of its most wanted war criminals. The KGB began investigating Savoniak in 1946. Sixteen agents were sent on covert operations into the town over the next 13 years. Some were there to simply interview the residents, others actually took up residence in the town in the hope that Savoniak would return. But he did not, and nor did he make contact with anyone from Domachevo. The first hint that he was living in Britain came when the KGB interviewed a man called Kozlovsky, who had been in Domachevo's Nazi-recruited police force, the Schutzmannschaft, and had been a colleague of Savoniak's. He told agents that he had seen Savoniak in Egypt, and that, at that time, he was heading for Scotland with the Polish Free Army. But the KGB were wary of this account. Well, it seemed a bit far-fetched. If he'd moved to the UK, why weren't the British aware of him? However, confirmation of the story came ten years later, and from the most unlikely source. Savoniak himself. In 1959, he wrote a letter and sent a parcel to his brother, Nikolai, who had moved to a village near the Polish border. As previously mentioned, Nikolai was briefly a member of the Schutzmannschaft, but he had left because he did not want to kill Jews. Like many letters sent from the West, it was intercepted by the KGB and added to Savoniak's file. The letter, which had a London postmark, was the first concrete proof of his whereabouts and persuaded the Bureau to keep the inquiry alive. Some twenty years later, in 1981, a remarkable coincidence provided the KGB with more evidence of Savoniak's presence in the UK. They were actually monitoring the communications of another potential war criminal residing in the UK, one Stephen Andrusiuk, who had left Belarus to live in Britain at the end of the war. However, he still regularly communicated with relatives back in Domachevo, and in one of his letters to his sister, he wrote, You will never guess who I saw. The letter went on to tell her of spotting Savoniak in a London street. So now, the KGB definitely knew he lived in London. Two agents were sent to London to eke Savoniak out, but they were not able to find his home address. As this was a period when the Cold War was raging, the KGB did not share their findings with the UK police. However, the situation changed in 1986 during Mikhail Gorbachev's Glasnost, which was a period of increased openness and transparency in government institutions and activities in the USSR. Because of Glasnost, the KGB shared a list of 96 names of potential war criminals with the West. 
When the War Crimes Unit came into effect in 1991, the Russian Embassy in London supplied the unit with a list of potential war criminals residing in the UK, of which Savoniak's name was at the very top of the list, marked Most Wanted. Scotland Yard began investigating the list, but when it came to Savoniak, they drew a blank. His file, in comparison to the other potential suspects, was very thin, not at all comprehensive, and there were no witness statements. And, despite searching public and government records, not a single person resided in the UK with that name. They had to make the assumption that either Savoniak had died, or he had left the UK since the list was compiled. And then, another unbelievable incident occurred. As the names and crimes that they were researching spanned back over half a century, they often had to use historians to help them piece timelines together. It was whilst a historian was working with Scotland Yard on a different case that they noticed Savoniak's file and pointed out a very obvious mistake that had been missed by both Scotland Yard and the KGB. The spelling of Savoniak's name was wrong. It was spelled phonetically as pronounced in English, S-A-V-O-N-I-U-K. But in Polish, a W makes the sound of a V. His name was actually spelt S-A-W-O-N-I-U-K. Scotland Yard searched this new spelling in all databases, and... Bingo. They had a hit. One Anthony Savoniak, whom resided in Bermondsey, South London, a retired rail ticket collector. He had obviously changed his name from Andrei to Anthony to anglicise it. At 10am on March 21st, 1996, 75-year-old Savoniak answered a knock at his door and stood before him was the very confrontation he thought he had escaped for over half a century. Apparently, he was lost for words. <laughs> That'd be a first. Police interviewed his neighbours and just could not believe that this ordinary, quiet, unassuming man that lived amongst them could have such a heinous past. But when the police searched his flat, they were shocked at the amount of trophy evidence he had retained that belied his cruel history. He had actually kept papers that identified him as a member of the Schutzmannschaft. An investigation started, but from the onset there were numerous problems. Most of the 431 people interviewed, whom were still alive and had resided in Domachevo during the war, were as old as Savoniak, and some, like his brother Nikolai, were too ill to travel to give evidence. Those that did come to Britain for interviews found the experience overwhelming. Take Fedor Zan, whom had resided in Domachevo during the war. Zan had never left the town and still lived in a shack on the outskirts of Domachevo, which had no electricity or running water. When he flew to Britain for the committal proceedings, he had to be shown how to use the toilet and shower in his hotel. Through their interviews, 
Scotland Yard were able to identify quite a few reliable eyewitnesses out of the 431 people they interviewed. But half a century old eyewitness statements, based on traumatic memories and not tangible evidence. Memories that often contradicted other eyewitness testimony. Well, it was tantamount to hearsay in court and wouldn't stand up to cross-examination. They just could not go to trial on eyewitness testimony alone. They also couldn't use the documents they had found in Savoniuk's home that attested to him being a member of the Schutzmannschaft. Why, I hear you ask? Because the authors of the documents were now deceased, and the War Crimes Act required the authors to be alive to bear witness to their authenticity. What they needed was an actual survivor to the atrocities that Savonia purportedly committed. Scotland Yard checked the survivor's record for the Domachevo region after World War II, and out of the 5,000 Jews that had lived in the town prior to 1941, only 12 had survived the war. <laughs> of the 12, 11 had deceased in the years after the war, there was only one person remaining in the entire world that could possibly, finally, bring justice to this one savage monster. They went back and looked at Savoniak's flimsy file that had been given to them by the Russian embassy to see if it held any further clues. And, on a torn, parched piece of faded paper folded in between two other pages, was a sheet. A sheet that listed the known survivors at that time that had come forward to the KGB after the war. And against their names was the alleged dates of the atrocities that they, or their families, had endured at the hands of Savoniak. When they compared this to the one remaining survivor from Domachevo, they got a hit. One, Ben, Zion, Blustein. They had a survivor. But, <clears throat> still had to find him. Fortunately, he wasn't hard to find. Ben had regaled his tales and atrocities bestowed on him to many organisations over the years, and the Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, where they keep an archive of survivor testimony, had a detailed record of Ben and his survival story. The police wasted no time in flying out to Israel to interview him, and Ben was only too happy to share his story once again and his statement was so strong an identifying of Savoniak as the perpetrator that they finally had the survivor eyewitness testimony that the War Crimes Act required in order to go to trial. Savoniak's legal team tried desperately to drop the case because he was suffering from a range of medical complaints. Well, he was 78 after all. However, when a news report showed an apparently robust Savoniak throwing rocks at journalists, and also threatening them with an iron bar, yeah, the decision to charge him suddenly became less contentious. And so, in February 1999, Savoniak finally went up against the Old Bailey, charged with four counts of murder, two unnamed Jewish women and two named Jewish men, for atrocities caused against them in 1942 while serving as Commandant of the Schutzmannschaft. The War Crimes Unit actually investigated 12 incidents, but 
eight of the alleged murders could not be brought to prosecution due to lack of evidence and survivor witnesses. Why only four counts of murder when he killed hundreds? And why is he on trial for murder and not genocide, I hear you ask? Well, because this was a condition of the War Crimes Act. Of course, during the trial, this condition of the Act was raised, and the genesis of the condition came down to a question of responsibility. Who was actually responsible for the genocide? Who can be responsible for a crime so huge that it can only be perpetrated by the mobilisation of an entire state and army? Well, I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? Probably the most sadistic, ruthless, pathological, narcissistic megalomaniac that lived in the 20th century. Adolf Hitler. But he was dead. However, it was the function of the Act and the Court of Law to extract Savoniak from the enormous machine of the Third Reich. The Nazi movement committed the crime. This is not disputed. Yet in a court being tried under the War Crimes Act, the individuals who were part of that movement needed to be transformed from henchmen of the right to carry out their orders to free-thinking people who conducted atrocities as a choice. They didn't have to undertake their orders. They could have fled, just like their victims had to in order to survive. There must have been many tens of thousands just like Savoniak. They were a necessary part of the machine which committed the genocide. But, in court, the War Crime Act demanded that he took responsibility for those crimes that he had committed during the time when he was part of the genocide machine. Ben was the first witness to be heard. He was old, but tough. He had a definite confidence in his story, combined with a nervous vulnerability. The type of vulnerability of one who knows that nothing in his life is safe and that no safety is absolute. And as he took the stand in the courtroom, he stood fully upright and stared his old friend squarely in the eyes. After 57 years, he was ready to tell his story, to tell his friend of the hell he had put him through. No detail would be spared, no emotion not covered, no truth untold. It is certain that when Ben tells his story in Israel, he is met with silence, with sympathy and with sorrow. He is a survivor hero in Israel and among Jews and indeed among anyone who has any kind of human feeling and who hears his story. But this was the Old Bailey, the second oldest courthouse in the country. Sentiment and emotion played no part within these ancient walls. It is not guided by human feeling. It is guided by its own rules and function and cold, hard facts. But this is also the Holocaust, a period in modern history that evokes tears, anger, shock and sorrow still to this day. The magnitude of the horror has not been diluted by time or generation. How can an eyewitness of the atrocities, a survivor of the Holocaust, not give testimony without emotion and ardour, for that is at the very heart of the atrocity. To stand at trial, facing your former friend, the very friend 
whom was part of the movement that killed your family, the very friend that you saw kill innocent people. Well, I'm not sure I could not inject emotion into such a testimony. Could you? But the court was only interested in the four Jews who were represented in the indictment. It was not interested in Ben's anguish, his nightmares, his last conversation with his mother, watching his siblings be shot, his blackened feet from frostbite, or any of his pain during those horrific years. It was only interested in the parts of Ben's story that it wished to use to construct the case for or against Savoniak. But Ben had waited 57 years for this day, and he was going to finally bear witness to his old friend, turned warmonger, now foe, just exactly what he had put him through, and the rest of the Jewish population of Domachevo. And so, the court listened in silence to his shocking testimony as he described in detail the German invasion, the ghettoization of the Jews, the massacre on Yom Kippur in 1942. He described how the town's Jewish barber was told to dig graves for his three sons who had been shot. One of his sons was still alive and cried and begged his father not to bury him. But the father was beaten by Savoniak until he complied with the order to bury his son alive. He told them about life inside the ghetto, how they were forced to wear yellow patches on their chests and backs, subject to curfews, rationing and regular beatings, how they often went without food and those that attempted to bring food into the ghetto were killed. He told them how he hid with his family, how they had unsuccessfully attempted suicide, how they had been killed, and how eventually he had been taken prisoner and forced to work at the German base. He told them of Savoniak's chilling statement, that if the Germans didn't kill him, he would massacre him. He told them that it was so bad, that if someone died, people were jealous. By the end of his testimony, there was not a dry eye in the entire courtroom. Okay, there was one. Savoniak. Ben was cross-examined for two days, in what has been described as a fascinating confrontation. But Ben wasn't going to back down, and he wasn't going to take the emotion out of his description of events. However, for a safe conviction, the prosecution needed more eyewitnesses, and so the court moved on to hear the evidence of the non-Jewish Belarusians who had travelled from the region of Domachevo to give evidence. Most of the prosecution witnesses spoke Belarusian and were from Borisi, a tiny hamlet near Domachevo. They were small farmers, and their religion was Russian Orthodox. The first was Mrs. Fedora Yakamuk, aged 73. She was small, wrinkled, old, but tough and stubborn. The defence tried to break her down under cross-examination and get her to admit that all her evidence against Savoniak was gleaned from gossip of the village, of which, under such pressure, she sadly broke and admitted that it had been village gossip. All except 
for one incident. Yakimuk's family had known Savoniak well. For his first wife, Anna Maslova, whom was killed in partisan crossfire during the war, was Yakimuk's nephew's godmother. And she told the court, I could to my shoulder one day. My mother, she bound it up. She put iodine on it. But the iodine, it, it came through my bandage onto my arm as a yellow stain. Andrusha, he saw me, and he shouted, Jude, Jude, to make me stop. Andrusha and some Germans, they dragged me away to be shot. I was crying, I was begging, kissing their feet. I was on my knees, explaining, I was not a Jew. I pleaded for my life. Andrusha knew me very well, but he didn't protect me. The Germans, they pulled off the bandage, and they saw my wound, and so they let me go. This was one week after the massacre. Ivan Bagley was up next, and told a story that related to one count of the indictments. Of the four counts, it was by far the strongest. Does the name Bagley ring a bell? Well, earlier in the story, I told you about how power had gone to Savoniak's head when he had become a member of the Schutzmannschaft, and how he demanded to live in Jakob Bagley's house instead of his ramshackle bungalow, and how he threatened Jakob with death when he asked for rent. Well, Jakob Bagley was Ivan Bagley's father. Ivan went on to tell the court about an incident that he and a friend, now dead, had witnessed. They had been doing a little looting in the ghetto after the main massacre. Savoniak had caught them, and he marched them off to the police station. We thought that we were going to be shot. We came out of the police station. We saw three Jews, two men and one woman. They were standing by a hole that had been dug out. We realised that we would not be shot, but would be burying them. Andrusha ordered them to undress. The men were about forty. They undressed. The woman, about twenty-eight, was reluctant to take her pants off. Andrusha insisted. Andrusha threatened her with a beating. The Jews were emaciated and unshaven. Andrusha shot the Jews in the back of the head. They fell into the pit. Andrusha told us to bury the bodies. We could keep the clothes. The last witness was Fedor Zan. Remember him? He had come across to England to be interviewed and had to be shown how to use the facilities in the hotel. 
Well, our dear Fedor told the court about an incident that related to count three of the indictment. He was visiting his sister in Kobelka, a nearby village, on his way home from work. As he was making his way there from the train station, through the woods, he heard crying and shouting. He saw a group of about 15 Jewish women undressing on the instructions of Savoniak. Savoniak then lined them up next to a pit and shot them with a machine gun. Now, remember how I said earlier on that 431 people had actually been interviewed for the trial, whom all claimed witness to Savoniak's offences? Well, of that 431, only Ben Blustein, Fedor Zan, Ivan Bagley and Fedora Yakimuk were considered physically fit enough to travel to the UK for the trial. But knowing that there were still so many witnesses back in Domachevo and that there was still physical evidence at the town that could attest and verify the witness statements that the jury were hearing. Well, this led to something quite unprecedented. Something that had never happened in a UK court before. Or since. Anthony Savoniuk was a police officer in Domachevo, a town under German occupation during the Second World War. That's the place the jury will visit in an unprecedented trip to view the scene of an alleged crime. Just turn the camera. This is a unique case. It's the first war crime trial actually to have started in the Crown Court in England. It's also a unique case and it's the first time a jury, a British jury, has ever left the jurisdiction of Great Britain and travelled overseas to view as this jury is doing. So, the entire jury went out to Domachevo. They visited the memorial erected to the slaughtered Jews. The townsfolk took them to the spots where they had witnessed Savoniak's atrocities. Fedozan, whom had given testimony in the UK, was also part of the team that went out to Domachevo, and he took the jury to the spot where he had hidden from Savoniak, and to the spot where he says he saw Savoniak shooting the 15 Jewish women. Back at trial in the UK, the eyewitness testimonies of those that had made it to the UK was wrapping up. All of their testimonies were sobering, even with the emotion taken out of their statements at cross-examination. However, by comparison, Savoniak's testimony was... Well, <laughs> there's only one way to put it. Absurd. He routinely denied everything. He denied things which he did not need to deny, and which every eyewitness testimony had agreed upon. He denied things which were clearly established historical fact. For example, he denied the existence of the ghetto in Domachevo. He denied that there were ghettos in any area of Poland. He denied that he had ever seen Jews wearing yellow stars. He denied that there were any greater restrictions put on Jews than on anyone else. He claimed 
that he even tried to protect the Jews from the Gestapo. And, when it was clear that his testimony was falling on deaf ears and was failing to stand up to cross-examination, he changed his narrative and claimed that the witnesses had come to Britain to tell lies about him on the orders of the KGB and that the KGB were in a cover-up conspiracy with Scotland Yard to pin crimes on innocent people so that they could protect the real war criminals. (laughs) Unbelievable. He finished his two-day rant by telling the jury that he had been a best friend to the Jews during the war. He, Savoniak, had protected them. And so his conscience was clear. And when he was dead, he was going to heaven. Hmm. If by heaven he means the place that is home to pitchfork-wielding horned demonic devils that will torment his soul and rip his body apart for eternity, then yes, he's going to heaven. When it came to the closing speeches, Savoniak's defence had very little case left, especially after Savoniak's two-day testimony of denial and conspiracy theories. But I have to give it to his lawyer. He really did try to make something out of the sow's ear that Savoniak had left him with. He pointed out that all the witnesses, i.e. the witnesses who testified to having seen Savoniak committing atrocities, came from Borosi, the small village outside of Domachevo. However, all of the witnesses who came from Domachevo itself, which was only Ben, provided useful and believable background information, but did not once speak of seeing Savoniak actually commit any crimes for what he was on trial for, for the murder of the two people in Domachevo. <laughs> okay, he's got a point. But then he concluded with the fact that there must have been either some sort of conspiracy amongst Borisy residents, or some sort of communal collective memory or gossip of Savoniak's wartime involvement. And furthermore, he gives a reason why Savoniak would be particularly hated in Borisi, and why they would build up a warped rhetoric about him. You see, Borisi was a partisan village, and Savoniak freely admitted to having killed partisans. You know... <laughs> He sort of had me at eyewitnesses, except Ben, not being from Domachevo. But a hamlet of 30 people, described by the defence as illiterate peasants, having the wherewithal to collectively conspire a myth over the course of 50 years against one man from another village that they accuse of hundreds of atrocities. Come on. But that's just my opinion. The only opinion that mattered was that of the jury, and they took several days in their deliberation in April 1999. Savoniak broke down and sobbed after hearing the first guilty verdict. When he was convicted for a second time, he showed no emotion, seemingly resigned to spending the rest of his life behind bars. Sentencing Savoniak to life imprisonment, the judge, Mr Justice Potts, said... No words of mine can add anything of value to those written and spoken 
about the events in which you played a part. Though you held a lowly rank in the hierarchy of those involved in liquidating the Jews of Eastern Europe, to the Jews of Domacheva, you must have seemed otherwise. Well, hallelujah and amen. Savoniak was given two life sentences, and was told by the judge that he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. Savoniak wept as he was led away. Of course, Savoniak tried to appeal his conviction, stating that he had had an unfair trial, because the events happened so long ago. Yeah, this was quashed by the House of Lords, and he remained in Norwich Prison until his natural death in 2005. At the conclusion of Savoniak's trial, Scotland Yard announced that the War Crimes Unit, which had once employed 11 police officers, two historians and support staff, was being scaled down to conclude its work, and that any new allegations received would be investigated by Scotland Yard's organised crime group. By the end of 1999, Scotland Yard announced that it was winding down the unit altogether. Why, I hear you ask? Well, whilst they still had names on their list of potential war criminals in the UK, they couldn't locate any living survivors or living eyewitnesses to testify against them, as was required under the War Crimes Act in order to go to trial. In the eight years that the War Crimes Unit and Act had been in place, only one person was successfully tried and convicted in the UK courts for war crimes. Andrei Savoniuk. I refuse to use his adopted anglicised name of Anthony, because this man is not a Briton to me. However, the trial created a number of legal precedents. Firstly, it was the first time a British jury had travelled abroad to see the scene of a crime. And secondly, Savoniak became the first UK citizen accused of war crimes to speak in his own defence in a criminal court. But, as the war unit had now closed down, Savoniak's trial was to go down in legal history for another reason. It wasn't just the first trial conviction against a World War II war criminal in the UK, but it was also going to be the last. Savoniak's trial lasted for eight weeks and in total cost £5.4 million. This amount came under much scrutiny from the press one trial to convict one person cost the equivalent of approximately a dozen or more murder trials. However, as a British taxpayer myself, I can tell you, I am happy my tax money went to pay for this trial. I don't see it as one man, one trial. I see it as one man convicted, but justice was finally given to the voiceless hundreds that were slaughtered at his hands. So, we know what happened to Savoniak. God, please don't rest his soul. But what about our friend Ben? Well, Ben is back in Israel with his family. He's retired now, but he still travels all over the country and the world telling people about his story. But obviously, now, he has an added extra ending the trial and conviction of his old friend, turned warmonger, turned foe, 
and how his witness testimony brought him to justice. Ben has never forgotten that last day in the courtroom. He watched as Savoniak shuffled out of the courtroom, a pathetic spectacle of a man. He saw Savoniak's tears as he was led out, and he too was crying. He had just done the hardest thing that he had ever had to do since the war ended, and he was weary. But his heart was light. He had sought justice and a voice for his family and for the thousands of Jews that were slaughtered at Domachevo. And he kept his promise to the shadow of a man he'd met at the concentration camp in Majednik. The human ghost. He had told the world about what had happened to the Jews. He had fulfilled his mission. So, that is the story of Benzine Blustein and Andrei Sivoniuk. They went from being childhood friends to enemies due to resentment and barbarous acts under the guise of war. One becoming a warmongering tormentor and the other a survivor of his tormentor's crimes. To eventually, 50 years later, one becoming witness and the other convicted by the witness testimony. I hope you like this story. Apologies again for another two-parter, but I think you understand now why I could not cram it all into one episode. I just could not have done justice to Ben's epic journey from friend to fearful subordinate to survivor to witness. I would like to thank my friends, Stuart Gibson and Shane Huby, for lending their voices to today's episode. We're keeping BDG alive, even in lockdown. (laughs) Inside joke, sorry. I would also like to thank some new countries to the podcast. I just love seeing the country list grow each week. In the last couple of weeks, I've picked up quite a few new listeners in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Whilst these are all part of the UK, of which I've already thanked previously, they are also countries within their own rights and deserve to be thanked. So, I would like to thank Scotland. Hello, I just believe. And Wales. Snai Adoch. And Northern Ireland. Giachwich Argus Grimahagut. As always, profound apologies for what I know. I have just desecrated. But I hope you know that it is meant with the best intentions. Lastly, here comes my weekly request. Please, can you rate this podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts? I can tell you, it would make one little podcaster whom is in what I can only describe as a rainstorm of biblical proportions feel all warm and fuzzy. Oh, the joys of living in a far-flung village in the north of England. And speaking of deluges, many apologies if you can hear the rain in the background of some sections of today's episode. I did try to wait out the storm, but after three days of solid rain, I would not have been able to get this episode out to your lovely ears if I waited any longer. Also, 
Come find me in all the usual places, Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Darkseid. I'd love to have you along for the ride. So, until next time, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. Thank you.